And when I first got hurt, I was like, this is the worst. I can't do my job anymore. This is all I've ever wanted to do. This is who I am. What am I going to do now? And now I look back on it and it's, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it forced me to start answering those questions for myself. Mm. What am I going to do next? I, I'm like, I can't do this forever. Even if I wanted to stay in the military for as long as I could. And I'm, but there are people who stay in the military for a long time. We're talking like 30 plus years. Mm. You're going to time out at some point. And hopefully you have thought about what's going to be next. And that's the advice that I give to most people who are pursuing the career now or wherever they are in their career. I saw it time and time and time again. People would do 19 out of a 20-year career. And in their 19th year, they're like, all right, going to school, starting on my bachelor's. It's like, man, you're a few years late for this. You know, like lift your head up a little bit and at least think about what other options you have and what else you could potentially do in case something happens. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Invictus Mindset Podcast. Today's guest is a retired Navy SEAL. He's a record-setting wingsuit pilot, a base jumper, a public speaker, and the host of one of my favorite podcasts, Cleared Hot. This man is world-renowned and needs zero introduction. Welcome, Andy Stumpf. Welcome to the show, man. Yeah, what's going on? Thanks for having me. Stoked to chat with you today. We talked briefly offline about our uh, very first interaction with former Invictus yes. member Brandon Lillard <laughs> at uh, Skydive He's San such Diego. A character. Dude, we can get into his story a little bit later too. He's actually been a guest of ours uh, maybe a couple of years ago, right at the beginning of the show. But uh, yeah, it was my first time skydiving and he in- introduces me to you and you're packing your gear and making sure every all the loose ends are tied and you kind of peek over your shoulder and you're like huh, competitive exerciser, huh? And I was like, right yeah. off the bat, I was like, I like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you jump before or after we, we had were in the We were in the same plane. Yeah. My very okay. first time skydiving was with you. It was cool. Awesome. Yeah. it's. Uh, I think I've taken about 1,500 people for their first tandem skydive. And it's a, it's such an awesome experience. It you know people look at skydiving as something that's really complicated, and as you experienced, it it's actually not. The gear's not that complicated. It's scary because it's unknown, but the smiles on people's faces and the way they react to that first jump, I would imagine it's like not that I've ever done heroin, but I'd imagine it's like your first hit of heroin or whatever meth or you're chasing that you know every other uh, experience. Uh, but it's just never like the first one. So I'm glad we got to share that. Yeah, for sure, man. You summarized it pretty well. But out of curiosity, what what led you to that euphoric chase of wanting to jump out of, out of planes? You know, obviously you had a little bit of training in that arena in your SEAL development. But what made you want to pursue that, you know, kind of in, in your post-military career? Yeah, so getting into jumping was just it was part of my old job when I was in the military. So the pipeline, when I was in, we graduated buds, which is the, you know, the entry gates to the seal community. And essentially my entire buds class went to Fort Benning, Georgia for static line, which is the exact opposite experience of what you had at skydive San Diego. It could have been the same, but you would have just need to get up on the roof and jump on to the concrete and lay there and question why you would ever do something like that. And then do it four more times and you'd be a graduate of, static line, you know, army static line course. Wow. So 
you get to your SEAL team and you have five jumps. And, you know, this is pre-9-11, so training was a huge component of what we did. And we would break up, you know, a two-year cycle would be broken up into a six-month deployment. But 18 months before that is all training. And a portion of that is air operations. So you'll work with helicopters, which you can static line and free fall out of. You'll work with aircraft. But there's two very distinct groups. There's the group on the side of the aircraft that has the cable that you hook into and static line jump. And then there's a group on the other side that's wearing the free fall parachutes and they're high-fiving and they're smiling. And on the static line side, people are just like, it sucks. You're going to get exit an aircraft at 800 feet, like maybe 1300 feet. It's like ridiculously low. The parachute opens ridiculously hard. And then you impact the ground as if there's nothing above your head. So after doing that for a few weeks, and just laying again, laying on the ground and looking up and questioning my life's choices and watching these guys fall through the air and listen to them like hoot and holler and how much fun they're having and realizing it would have been years before I would have ever been able to go to the military course because the billets used to be very restrictive. Uh, I just went down to Skydive San Diego, which was not actually at the airport um, that you and I met at. It was at Brown Field. Okay. Very small, very small operation. But I went down on a Friday and just went through the accelerated free fall program and paid out of pocket. And I think I did, I failed one of the jumps. So I repeated that. So I think I did eight total. And then by like Sunday, I was jumping on my own, which looking in the rear view mirror, I'm like, Oh my God, that was so wildly irresponsible. That's so fast. It's the barriers to skydiving are not high. I mean, you go through ground school and you will do seven or eight jumps and you, you'll be jumping on your own. Now they have some limitations as to what you can do on those jumps because they want to keep you relatively safe. But the first time I exited a plane in free fall was so different than when I had done static line in the military. So from that first jump, I knew I was going to love it. And I just would on my weekends and any time off that I have, I would go down to skydive San Diego and I'd jump as much as I could. And then it presented the opportunity to actually challenge the military curriculum. So instead of going to their four week course, I went out to Yuma, Arizona, I think for four or five days did a bunch of jumps to show them that you were capable with all the equipment and packing the parachute and, Came back to the team, um, which it allowed me to bypass a, a few years of waiting. And then I just, I always loved it. So when I got out of the military, I was, you know, I worked for CrossFit for a while. And as I was leaving working for CrossFit, I had been ramping up uh, jumping again. And I lived really close to Skydive San Diego. And I was trying to figure out what it was that I was going to kind of do for a living and just made the decision that I was going to go both feet in the bucket of pursuing something that was really rewarding for me. So that's, you know, really roundabout long answer to your short question, but it, it was something that was kind of forced upon me when I was in the military. And then I just, I fell in love with it and found a way to do it professionally outside of it. That's really cool. That's one of my favorite things about you, Andy, is, is your unique ability to storytell and give true context. Like the fact that you're able to remember all those details really matters. And it, it really gives deep understanding to the consumer of your storytelling to, to really understand the ins and outs and the whys within your decision making, which, which I really, really appreciate. Trident Coffee is sponsoring this episode of the Invictus Mindset Podcast. My guys over at Trident taught me something really important this last year, that we are all a bundle of stories, both good and bad and everything in between. At Trident, they're storytellers. All of their cold brews remind their customers that, that they are part of something bigger than themselves. They help create connections through symbology and storytelling 
that engage their customers on an emotional level, and this distinguishes them from other coffee brands. You can find Trident in Imperial Beach and in Coronado. They offer over 14 plus nitro cold brews along with dairy-free options. You can find the perfect brew and pair it with one of their treats from their keto bakery. All these options will allow you to support your health and fitness journey with Trident Coffee. They're more than just a coffee company. You can check them out over at tridentcoffee.com and use code INVICTUS20 for 20% off online and in tap rooms. Once again, that's tridentcoffee.com. Use code INVICTUS20 for 20% off online and in tap rooms. Take your coffee experience to the next level. Two important factors for us over at Invictus Mindset are true care and attention to detail. My friends over at RX Markier have been bringing innovative fitness tools to the market since 2009. From their award-winning Evo Speed Ropes to their amazing gymnastics grips to their line of inflatable fitness equipment, they're constantly looking to problem solve within the fitness industry. They're always allowing us to have our gear work for us rather than against us. Hop on over to RX Markier and use discount code Invictus Mindset to shop their latest cutting edge gear. Have your gear work with you and not against you. How did you kind of overcome the fear associated with it? Like what was it around you know, not really seeing the, oh man, I could die from this or I could severely injure myself on this. I'm going to actually go all gas, no brakes. And it almost sounds to me that like you just had this, this childlike wonder around like, man, those guys look like they're having a good time. I want to have a good time. I'm going to go do that too. Well, anybody who tells you that there's no fear involved, especially when you start either static coin or free fall jumping is probably not being honest with you or they might be a touch sociopathic. I mean, there is risk involved and you are doing something that is very unique that you probably don't have exposure to, but I didn't have a choice. You know, when I was in static line, I, I remember our first jump very, very distinctly, but they were throwing out 50, 60 people at a time out of a huge military aircraft. Oh, and I, let's just say this. I'm glad that I wasn't the person who was staring at the door. I was like halfway in that stick of 50. So when the person in front of me started moving, I didn't, it's like people behind me were pushing. It's not like I had a choice to make at that point. I mean, the firewarm was going and we were out the door. So for the military jumps and all the static line ones, it didn't matter if I was scared. Like, how did I overcome it? I didn't have a choice. Yeah. You know, you can be scared or you can be happy. You're going. And then the more you do it, just like with anything, you gain some exposure, you gain some experience the world starts to open up to you. I mean, I remember my first skydive. I, you know, one of the, the only thing you really need to do in your very first free fall is you like look at your altimeter. And I remember that I was wearing it and I'm aware that there were numbers on the altimeter. Probably couldn't have told you what the needle was necessarily pointing at. But now when I jump, it's like the world is totally different. I can see things and remember things and experience things because I've just had more time to percolate in that, you know, cup of tea, if mm -hmm. you will. So I've, it's, it's a matter of just incremental exposure. So when I got to the place where I was out of the military, had stopped working for CrossFit, I had already experienced most of the malfunctions with the parachute equipment that were going to be possible. Um, I had had thousands of jumps at that point. So it really, there was no additional risk 
by jumping in with both feet, no pun intended, um, because I had taken a long period of time to get to that level of experience. I mean, at this point now, I've been jumping for 24 years, mm. and I have just shy of 8,000 jumps, which is a super small number for people who have worked in the sport. For that amount of time, they'd have 30, 40, 50,000 jumps. Um, maybe not everybody, but like twenty to 30,000 range would be appropriate for somebody who had worked in the sport for that long. So I have a good amount, but it's over a long period of time. And that that lends itself to, you know, incrementally learning lessons that allow you to really, to me, I mean, I spent a lot of time assessing and trying to mitigate risk. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> the wingsuiting stuff like we were talking about before uh, you hit the record button, you know, I didn't know what it was uh, for years. I mean, I had seen it and I'm like, yeah, that looks a little bit weird. I didn't jump a wingsuit until I had like 3,000 jumps, which really helped because all of the my fear about jumping was gone at that point. So I could allocate all of my energy to just learning that new skill. Not to say that you would have to wait that long or that I would recommend people do that. But there is there's something to be gained for that slow incremental exposure. It really helps. Yeah. It's cool to see how you calloused your mind over time. And going back a little bit to, to your childhood and the, the formulation of, of your value systems and your moral code and your unique ability to formulate in-depth and se sequential thought processes, what was your upbringing kind of like? And how did you ultimately have desires to pursue the military? I mean, I, I look back, I had a very like middle-of-the-road normal upbringing. Um, middle class, like lower middle class. My father was a brick mason. Um, my mom did a variety of jobs, you know, administrative uh, jobs. And towards the end, you know, like in the tech space near the Scotts Valley, Silicon Valley area, it was still kind of exploding and, and growing into what it would become because I was born and raised in Santa Cruz, which is just over the hill, you know, from the explosion of the internet and all the ecosystem that is around that. But, you know, I grew up doing, you know, junior lifeguards on the beach, playing in the water and then working for my dad, you know, in the summer times, went to public high school, barely graduated with like below a 2.0 GPA. Cause I wasn't interested. I look back at it now. I, I just wasn't interested in school because I knew that I had wanted to be a seal since I was about 11 years old. And I don't have a great answer as to where that came from or why it stuck with me so much, but it's probably the most common narrative that I had and the people that I worked with in the seal community that we, you'd ask somebody like, Hey man, how old were you when you knew you wanted to be a seal? They're like 10, 11, 12. And then what do you think it was that hooked you? No idea. So super common, um, in that community and very abnormal for everybody else that I grew up around with, but you know, played sports. I did uh, baseball in the baseball season and water polo, uh, in the off season, but I think the biggest thing that probably helped me when it comes to, you know, shaping me to who I am as a person is my parents. I, I won the lottery when it came to my parents. Um, my dad had me working with him. We moved back into Santa Cruz right after the earthquake in 1989 because it just leveled a lot of the, you know, the brick and masonry work that was there. So there was, there was not just my dad, but there's an influx of people in that industry that came back. And he, you know, he was, he was under understaffed. So he hired me as an 11 year old, which still left him very understaffed because I wasn't doing shit well at 11 <laughs> years old. <laughs> uh, I still gave him shit. I'm like, Hey man, you paid me a dollar 50 an hour. 
when I first worked for you. And he just laughs. He goes, yeah, but you were only worth 75 cents. So you're welcome. <laughs> you're probably... You're probably right. So that's where your but subtle I, sarcasm started to form. Uh, <laughs> my sarcasm certainly comes from my dad, for sure. We're, we're two peas in a pod on that. But I grew up working very physically hard. Um, I was not. I was never a mason. I just moved all of the shit around and tried to facilitate the masons doing their work. So I was moving brick. I was making uh, mud. You know, I was moving scaffolding and t- and tearing things down and doing cleanup and. It was hard and it, it was a, it was a job site that was unforgiving. You know, you could certainly hurt yourself. There was no politically correct language anywhere within a hundred miles of the job site that we were on. <laughs> but my dad and I have always had a, a great relationship and, and, and the ability to talk. And, you know, anytime I had questions about anything, whether it be life or work, or if I needed, you know, an ally, my parents were always in my corner um, and they set my moral compass for me. And I think I got very lucky to fall, you know, one, when I wanted to be a SEAL like that early, I didn't actually know what the pipeline would entail. I didn't know that the odds mathematically were not going to be in my favor. I didn't understand the injury rate. I didn't even know exactly what the SEALs did. It just, at that age, for whatever reason it was, I was like, that's, I have to do that. And then I got to that community with a good moral compass and that community, you know, I was like 18 years old when I got into that community. I just turned 19, I think, when I got to my first SEAL team. And I was surrounded by people who also had fantastic moral compasses. And they just, it solidified it for me. So it was a combination between my parents and then the people who really helped mentor and shepherd me into the SEAL community when I was still in a really malleable phase of my life. Yeah. A couple key points that I'm hearing are, you know, the surrendering to just being useful there when when you were working with your father and doing all the intangibles that maybe the other guys weren't doing or weren't willing to do or maybe you know the one spot that didn't require high level skill or deep thought it's like okay that's what I can do I'm going to do that and you know it gave you a, a supreme focus you know the unique ability to bullshit with the crew and people significantly older than you probably upgraded your operating system your language and your ability to to navigate different styles of connection with different people from different backgrounds. And then simultaneously going into the school component, school's an interesting one. Um, I've heard you and Rogan talk about this a little bit, and it's just like our, our education system is kind of formulated to be like, hey, memorize these things for this exam, then you're going to be ranked based on your scores to set exam. So really it's teaching you to be a great like factory worker for the Industrial Revolution time. But to actually critically think or maybe push against the grain or question traditional norms requires a little bit more outside of the box thinking. And in my unique interactions with various people within the SEAL community, that's something that I see as a common thread where it's like, okay, I see your thought process here, but why is it that way? What if uh, there's a better way? Maybe we can try to find that together. And, um, I, I really admire those three points around you know you sharing a little bit of, of your storytelling in your upbringing because I think those make you distinctly unique and you don't even know it. It kind of lives within your subconscious. Yeah, again, I didn't have a choice working for my dad either. So a lot of the things that people would look at in my life like, oh, that must have been amazing. It's like, son of a bitch, I didn't have a choice. I was 11. My dad's like, get in the goddamn car or you're not getting lunch. <laughs> I was like, well – I'm getting in the car. The lessons they, the lessons I learned, I wasn't realizing it at the time. They certainly yeah. served me well. Um, and you know, the school one is an interesting one because I have 
Uh, my oldest son now is 19, but I have a son who is a senior who's going to graduate early here next month and a daughter who's a freshman. And I look back at the schooling that I went through and it, it was much like you described. You know, my favorite classes were English, you know, creative writing. But the most important class that I took in high school and the one that still has stayed with me is typing, an actual functional skill. That is the one I use almost every single day. And what I wish they would have taught me in high school were things about taxes and how to balance a checkbook. For real. You know? I mean, like actual, I understand, you know, like, okay, you got to go through math and do all this because you, you do use math every day in English and all of that. But I try to like, when my kids ask stuff, you know, one, they're, my kids have these tools that I didn't have at their age. My God, the ability to go onto YouTube. My sons have figured out basic programming. They have figured out like home, like, you know, fixing things at home, you know, whether it's a stuck window or how to level a door that's not closing properly. That's their first thing is they dive right into YouTube. And I can't even imagine having that tool at my age. First off, for clarity, I probably would have used it improperly and looked at some shit I wasn't supposed to look at. But <laughs> I'm just being honest. That portal to knowledge is unbelievable and it's endless. You can go as deep down the rabbit hole as you want to go and you have all these touch points to people. And so they have their schooling. They do that on YouTube. And then I try to teach them stuff like, hey, here's how you change a tire. Do you actually know where the jack is? And you're like things that have helped me in life that you're not going to get taught in school. But how awesome would it be actually if they did teach a class in school where they show you how to change a tire on a car? That would mm -hmm. be pretty sweet. Or literally how to balance a checkbook. Here is – how you could look at investing. You know, I mean, like there's so many things that school does not prepare you for. And then you graduate and it's like, here I am world. I'm ready to go. Do you think but that's, that's purposeful though, where, <laughs> where the world almost doesn't want the, the, the next generation to pick up some of those skills. Cause it gives them too much knowledge and power to seek edges and push boundaries. I think some people could look at it like that. I think if you were really insecure in who you are, you could look at it like that because I look at it the exact opposite. I want people to explore as much as humanly possible and I want to ride the wave of the amazing things that they're able to do. Yeah, and none I of agree. those things I'm going to get – yeah, I'm not going to get credit for any of those amazing things and I don't care. Like let's go with the whole rising tide lifts all boats theory mm -hmm. as opposed to like, hey, we're going to you know, we're gonna drill a hole in the bottom of your boat because we want to – slow down your ability to grow. I'm like, I'm the exact opposite. Put the gas pedal on the floor. Yeah, totally. When you look at, you know, we, we discussed how you became a SEAL. When you look back and, you know, specifically zoom in to, to BUDS, did you feel like you were pretty prepared for that style of training, you know, at such a young age? You know, now, as you mentioned, there's YouTube, there's books, there's movies, yeah. there's people talking about it and documenting it. But at that time, you know, did you have the tools in your toolbox to explore preparation or was it just the the fortunate circumstance of, hey, get the fuck in the car. We're going to go work hard, you know, lay in brick. And that kind of just gave you some tools in addition to your exposure to water. The laying brick helped Be growing up on beaches and playing water polo absolutely helped with the water evolutions. <clears throat> but man, the amount of information that was available was limited you would get like 15th, 16th hand information, a rumor that somebody had heard something about what goes on in training. And so I didn't know exactly what to expect. Um, I knew we were going to run a bunch. We were going to swim a bunch and we were going to be doing a lot of physical activities. So I, I did train very hard leading up to it. I mean, when I was a junior, senior in high school, I would get up early. 
uh, there's a 24 hour fitness just down the road from where we lived. I would go there and like run on the treadmill. One of the most embarrassing moments of my life happened. Um, like it just scarred me. I'm like a junior in high school, 17 years old, two very attractive women running on a treadmill. There's an open one in between. I step on the non-moving portion of the treadmill on my run backflip and immediately leave the gym. I don't know if I ever actually went back. It was soul crushing <laughs> to me at that age. I wasn't ready for it. So I think I was running outside after that, but I mean, I was, and then in the military, you know, uh, so you go to boot camp and then you have to do an occupational school. I was training as hard as I could at that occupational school, but I don't, you know, buds has something for everybody. And going back as an instructor was very enlightening because as a student, nothing really makes sense. It seems very chaotic. It seems like something you do one day is rewarded, but the next day you do the exact same thing and it's punished and you can't really figure it out. And then as an instructor, you realize, yeah, you're not supposed to be able to figure it out. That's the point of the curriculum. We're trying to mm. test people and figure out a way, you know, let's say maybe you're a physical stud when it comes to running. Well, guess what? The ocean and the obstacle course, they might have something for you. Or if you're great in the water, you know, the four mile time runs or all the beach runs that we do or the obstacle course again, you know, it, it, it's going to challenge you. And maybe you do great when you have a full tank of gas, but how about when you're exhausted and you've been up for four days? So BUDS is designed to figure out whatever it is to get you to your lowest point and then watch what you do. What decisions do you make? Do you figure out a way to continue or do you throw in the towel? Um, and even people who train exceptionally hard, you know, to answer your question, do I feel like I was ready? I feel like I was as ready as I could be. And for people out there training, you should get as ready as you can possibly get and then still be prepared to be pressed and challenged probably more so than you ever have in your entire life. Yeah, for sure. Looking at it through the lenses of, of an instructor, which is where you ended up post-military, do you uh, align with some of the things that Goggins has said around like, you know, uh, some people just felt like, you know, the instructors were there to help support and guide, but he, he's kind of categorized it like he felt like he was being more judged like a lot of the instructors were thinking of it more so through their personal lens of like how was my experience in relation to his experience right now how do you kind of uh clarify that a little bit so you know the instructors are human beings so it's very hard for me to say with any level of certainty exactly what he was particularly dealing with there are instructors that will come there with a chip on their shoulder and it's almost like a character that they choose to play and they want to be very aggressive and they want to kind of grind people and they want to yell. Mm -hmm. In the 18 months that I was there as an instructor, I don't even think I raised my voice one time. I would talk to them and don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean I didn't hold the students to the standard, but I would just talk to them and hammer the ever living shit out of them at a normal tone of voice. Because my theory was I, and probably going to continue if I go back from being a buds instructor, which I did. I went back over to SEAL Team Three. I'm going to mm -hmm. end up working with a lot of these people. So at some point, you have to realize that they've made it far enough through the training pipeline that most of the crucible testing process has occurred. Now let's start layering on some knowledge and actually teach these people. You know, on Fridays I would sit down oftentimes and do a core values class. Oh, that's and I would just really answer cool. Questions. Well, and it was called core values. We didn't always necessarily cover core values, but I would allow them to ask any question that they actually had about the SEAL community. And the questions that I got were unbelievable. They ran the gambit. It was, you know, that people wanted, well, how is the stress on family? 
How is it raising kids when you are a SEAL? You know, what do you, what do you, should I try to go over to a development group? Which coast is better? What's it actually like being in combat? And they were some of the most rewarding classes that I was able to present. And it, again, it wasn't like I was really presenting a class. I was just being there and interfacing with them and trying to teach them or not teach them, but treat them as a peer. Yes, they're still in training, but I'm going to allocate and dedicate the time to make sure that you guys can answer, you know, answer the questions that you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have loved Goggins to be a front, fly on the wall for that. That would have been really cool to yeah. observe some of those special conversations. They, I think they were impactful. A lot of the, uh, the students told me later on in their career that it was impactful. Now on the Goggins front, his attitude writes a lot of the checks that other people cash. If you are a student that has an attitude that draws the attention of the instructors, you're going to get treated as such. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, the politest way to say it is just because it comes out of his mouth doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. And I'll leave yeah. it at that. That's fair. You do a really good job, you know, dancing with challenging questions like that. I, th- I think it's really a, an awesome skill. I mean, there's so much controversy and bullshit out there. Well, you do the, a really good job with it. Well, here's the thing. You know, I have extreme criticism of him and the way he portrays his military career. But that criticism would really only be understood by people who come from that community. Because yeah. I would be talking about things that most people don't have any understanding of, and it doesn't have a lot of value. And I recognize what he has done post-military, and I recognize the fact that he motivates millions of people. And who am I to say anything negative about that? So my criticism needs to be shelved or at least contained in a very specific box because what he's doing now, if he's making people's life better – if he is setting an example for people that they are following and having improvement, I mean, I'm not going to stand in the way of that. Um, and there's no real value for me to, to dredge up, you know, <clears throat> my criticism of him. If he ever wanted to sit down and discuss it, which he will never do because it's not going to go his way, that's one thing. But until that point in time, if that ever happens, which I don't think it ever would, you know, it's, it's pointless and it makes me look like an asshole by wading back into that pond. I think it's supreme maturity, though. I appreciate your insight on that. And, you know, diving back into your, your military career, how many deployments did, did you serve? And did, did any of them in particular really stand out to you? So I did two deployments pre-9-11. The first one was to Japan. And pre-9-11 was training. You know, our whole, our whole life was around training and the preparation uh, for the what if, if something happens, what if something happens, are we going to be prepared? And then we would forward deploy um, throughout the world uh, in case something did happen. So you could respond quicker. Spoiler alert, nothing happened. So my first deployment was to Japan and my second one was to Guam. Uh, 9-11 obviously was what it was. So I did two pre-9-11 and then eight post-9-11. Um, and as far as ones that stuck out, even on the pre-9-11 you know, deployments, I had some of the closest friends that I've ever had in my life. And God, we had so much fun. I mean, for, you know, like you're sitting on uh, you know, a little small Zodiac in the middle of the ocean near Guam and a submarine periscope comes by and you get to hook to a buoy and then do a breath hold down into a dry dock shelter 
and spend a month on a submarine doing exactly that. And it's like, who gets to do that? Man, like nobody. And it's awesome. And it's all your friends. So, and there's no combat involved in any of that. It was just a really wild experience. I mean, I ate till I was tired and I slept until I was hungry. And then we'd go swim around for a bit. It was, it was a pretty sweet month, actually. Um, and, you know, the second deployment to Guam, same thing. Like we training trips to the Philippines and to Thailand and doing like jungle survival stuff for just being with your friends, uh, training extremely hard. Um, everybody's got a pretty similar you know, mission focus and drive. And then post 9-11, obviously very, very different deployments because they no longer were conceptual deployments. They were very practical deployments. And there's at least one or two things that sticks out uh, on every one of those. But again, the baseline of that is the people that I was surrounded by. You know, I think mm-hmm. when people ask me, you know, what is, what is it that I miss? I don't miss the combat aspect of it at all, but I do miss some of the people that I used to work with. I mean, that for me is what made it what it was. So much depth within relationships when there's learning, problem solving, adventuring, you know, new, new environments that you're kind of navigating and trying to figure out together. And it, it, it's just, I don't know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt can be very challenging things, which we all saw a little bit during the pandemic, but they can <laughs> also be really rewarding to the unique connections that formulate over time. Yeah. I mean, you can either view those things as an obstacle and, and adversity or motivation. And the choice is really kind of how you frame it between your ears. Yeah, for sure. At what point in your military career uh, did you get married and, and have kids? So got married in 2001, February of 2001. My oldest son was born in October of 2003, then August of 2005, and then June of 2008. Um, so got married very young. Um, and the marriage at, you know, at the end, I was, uh, I was married for 19 years and 11 months before the divorce, uh, was finalized. Uh, and to say that there are challenges in a military relationship is an understatement. Um, and then you add that into the special operations community and the uncertainty of the career and the amount of time that you have to dedicate to it we're talking orders of magnitude on top of just a traditional military relationship. It is extremely difficult. Um, and I would not, I would not advocate for anybody to avoid relationships, but I would advocate for them to take the time to make sure that they have found the right person. Mm -hmm. In, in those in-depth, you know, core values conversations, you know, you had, you probably had those pre marriage and kids experience. And then maybe some of those conversations post, how did the wheels in between your ears kind of formulate between those? And how were you able to navigate some of the, the challenges within the family dynamic while also maintaining your, your own core values and leadership structure with, with those within your, your military connections? Um, you know, the most honest answer is, is that I prioritized work over my family. Um, and I, and I don't say that as something that I am proud of, but it, what it was, what was required of me to do the job at the level that I was operating at, especially when I had people that were working for me and I was responsible for them, but there is a toll that you pay in doing so. Um, the one thing I had on my side at that time is that my children were very young. You know, when I went on my last combat deployment, I kissed my daughter goodbye. She was still in a crib. So she doesn't have any memory of me actually going on military deployments. 
And my sons, I have, you know, maybe the vaguest recollection of me leaving. Um, but they didn't really have any idea what I was doing. So I think I was fortunate that I was able to conclude my operational, the operational portion of my military career while they were at that age. Because, you know, obviously being their dad in the, in the years past that, you miss, I mean, you miss more as your kids are growing up, whether it be their activities, you know, birthdays are always birthdays, holidays are always holidays, obviously. But, you know, for anybody who doesn't have kids, I'm here to tell you right now, it's not the most exciting thing for like the first couple of years because they just like look at you and shit in their pants and, and like burp and they want food. And they're like, oh, this is not as fun as I thought it'd be. Let's play catch. You throw the ball and it just goes past them. You're like, son of a bitch. But then when they're like eight, they're like, they're like, dad, I want a motorcycle. They're like, fuck yeah, you need a motorcycle and so do I. So, you know, it, it's just, I mean, I, I, I don't even have the vocabulary for how much I love my kids, but it's super different when they're really young and then when they're growing mm -hmm. up and you can do stuff with them and talk, like, what do you want to do? What are you passionate about? What do you want to explore? Yeah. I got to do a lot of that because as I was winding up my military career, you know, they were growing up. So I think I got lucky when it came to finishing the operational career when the kids were younger, but the, I, I'm not going to say that the military was the cause of uh, my eventual divorce, but I will say it didn't help. And by saying that, what I mean is my dedication and allocation of my energy and time towards the occupation because the job came first. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you sharing that. I know that's not easy. Uh, I think there's a ton of value in there for other people that are potentially following your footsteps or, or in a similar story right now. Um, when you look at your military career, you know, the relationships obviously stand out, the lessons, there's so many transferable skills that you're, you're sharing with the world in a, in a form of consulting and leadership strategy now. But there was one particular experience that, that you shared in depth with Jocko quite a bit around get, getting shot in your hip. When you reflect mm -hmm. on that, on that experience, you know, what are, what are some of the key points and the lessons that you acquired from that very challenging experience? I mean, lesson one is don't get shot. It's not very fun. It doesn't yeah. feel good. So we can strike that one off for most people. There's the sarcasm like, what from your like, dad yeah. again. <laughs> people are like, what does it feel like to get shot? I'm like fucking hurts. Moving on. <laughs> oh, <laughs> feels like man. a hot poker. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I thought about this, you know, often, not, not that I spend an, an insane amount of time thinking about it, but I will sit down sometimes and just think about, I wonder what it would have looked like had that not happened, because it did change the course of my military career for sure. And I don't know what it, I don't know what it would have looked like and where I would have ended up and what my, where my career would have gone. Um, and so it's like, it's a, not really a useful exercise, but I will sit down sometimes and just kind of think about it because the reality is I, I need to look at what happened. And when I first got hurt, I it was like, this is the worst. I can't do my job anymore. This is all I've ever wanted to do. This is who I am. What am I going to do now? And now I look back on it and it's, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it forced me to start answering those questions for myself. Mm. What am I going to do next? I, I'm like, I can't do this forever, even if I wanted to stay in the military for as long as I could. I mean, but there are people who stay in the military for a long time. We're talking like 30 plus years. Mm. You're going to time out at some point. 
and hopefully you have thought about what's going to be next. And that's the advice that I give to most people who are pursuing the career now or wherever they are in their career. I saw it time and time and time again. People would do 19 out of a 20-year career. And in their 19th year, they're like, all right, going to school, starting on my bachelor's. It's like, man, you're a few years late for this. You know, like lift your head up a little bit and at least think about what other options you have and what else you could potentially do in case something happens. Because I was almost put into that situation. I didn't know what I was going to do. And it forced me to start thinking about other things that I could do in addition to being in the military that would potentially help set me up for success in the future. I mean, it's actually how I found, uh, you know, CrossFit was I used that methodology to rehab from getting hurt. And then I'm sure, as you know, CrossFit was founded in Santa Cruz by Greg and Dave introduced me. So Dave was from Watsonville, which is a a city just south of where I lived in the Monterey Bay. Um, We said he and I never competed against each other in high school, but our high schools competed against each other. He was the one who actually introduced me to Greg, but he wouldn't, I wouldn't have had that opportunity to, meet Greg and work for that organization had I not gotten shot, which was my springboard for actually when I decided to get out of the military in 2013, I'd already been working for CrossFit part-time for five years. You know, it's all of those things. If you start looking backwards, when did my trajectory start changing? And it was that night in that courtyard in Iraq. Um, and it really helped me lift my head up a little bit. And it, it got me moving in other directions at a time where it gave me an opportunity. I didn't have to dedicate too much to it because I started pretty early. And then by the time things came to fruition, I was ready to get out of the military and it was a seamless transition. Yeah. It sounds to me like a lot of your development came from what I describe as NFC, no fucking choice where it's like getting shot. It's like, all right, well I obviously have to rehab. You found CrossFit the, the, the rehab really ignited and, you know, felt right in between your ears, how did you ultimately transition from using CrossFit to then working for CrossFit? That I think was more a metric of CrossFit growing and they were understaffed. Mm. Um, The first seminar that I worked at was a Canadian military seminar and they were doing civilian. The first one I ever went to was the Orange County Fire Authority and I just went and watched. Um, So they were doing civilian seminars, but the military side was actually growing. And again, you know, the NFC thing, right? Like no fucking choice. If you actually think about it, just as human beings, we actually don't have, we have a lot of choices, but we don't have a lot of things that we can control. Like you really can't control most things that happen to you in life, but you can control 100% of the time how you react to them, how you receive to them, how you grow from them or get demolished by them. You actually have that control. Um, which is an aside from, you know, working for CrossFit. But so I went through this civilian uh, seminar and I just watched and they had an upcoming military seminar and they needed a body. They needed somebody to go up there and teach. Um, So I went. And so for a little bit, I started working only on the military side. And then the explosion of CrossFit in, you know, 08, 09, 10, um, it was like right place, right time. It was essentially what it was. Yeah, for sure. I think it's really cool your involvement with them. You know, I cross paths with so many of the OGs within the CrossFit space, and your name always seems to come up in such a respectful manner. But, um, you know, when we look back, you mentioned when you were working with your dad, you know, political conversations and appropriate verbiage were not always, you know, the, the continued practice. And, you know, then, you know, getting to work with Greg Glassman a little bit, Incredible yep. methodology, um, subtle genius, really created some some amazing things. 
But then there's the peek behind the curtain that so many people may or may not have been aware of or just let it slide for a really long time until the the challenges of 2020. And, you know, on that mm-hmm. Zoom meeting, had some choice words. But more importantly, going back to my compliment of how you digest and untangle very challenging moments in time. This episode is brought to you by Mush. My friends over at Mush created an incredibly cool product of ready-to-eat overnight oats. And for those of you that listen to the podcast often, you know simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And Mush has done just that, as their products have no more than seven clean ingredients that are dairy-free, gluten-free, with no added sugar. Mush started right here at Invictus, as they had a vision to create convenient, healthy, and clean nutrition. And this landed them on Shark Tank, where the famous Mark Cuban invested in them. Now they're found in retailers all over the country, including Costco, Sprouts, Target, and Whole Foods. Check out my friends over at www.eatmush.com. You actually had, in my opinion, the best podcast episode dissecting his words, the history associated with it, simultaneously protecting yourself and others within the process. We don't have to go too deep into it out of protection for everybody involved, but I'm very curious your thoughts on on those matters now that the dust has settled a little bit after the gentle chaos associated with Glassman and then the selling of CrossFit to Eric Rosa. Yeah, I think I think Greg got really lucky with how well he got off. It was – how would I describe this? It was very, very close to a lot more high-profile information coming out that I think would have netted a very different end state. And I think he he got off very lucky. It's probably the best way that I can put it. Yeah. I think you had a great insight, right? I, th- I believe after your – teaching and and working a little bit with CrossFit, you became a pilot for CrossFit. Is that correct? Yeah. So I was doing, um, so I started off, like I said, at the military seminars. Then um, as the civilian seminars, they grew and outpaced the military growth. So they needed uh, civilian seminars. So I started teaching at those and just the movement stuff. And just like anybody else, it's like eventually you'll give probably the technique lecture. You'll, you know, so you'll focus on movements and maybe teach those in front of the group. And then you'll switch over and start teaching some of the conceptual lectures, right? And usually they'll start people on the technique lecture and then it can build in, you can do nutrition or, you know, eventually you're up there opening the seminar, delivering, you know, the what is CrossFit, what is fitness, um, which are, that's all based off the material that Greg created and presented. And what people probably don't realize is at the original seminars, Greg was up there for every lecture, conceptual Mm. and movement. Like, holy shit, you want to talk about being exhausted at the end of the day? It's tough to present for that many hours. Yeah. And as he started load sharing that and task sharing that, it got to a point where like, okay, there's 52 weekends in a year. Well, we need to have another seminar crew where Greg is not at. So and that's when I became a flow master and I was given my own crew and I traveled all over the world um, and then did a military deployment in 2010, came back from it and switched over to what I would call the business side of the house. For a while, I ran all the charitable initiatives. Uh, I managed the Reebok relationship for about three years. And, uh, probably about 2010, I'd already had my pilot's license, and Greg called me up. He was like, hey, 
you know, he was living out in Arizona and he was, it was like this triangle of death between Santa Cruz, uh, where he lived in Arizona and San Diego. And he was just driving so much. And he's like, you know what? I'm, I'm wasting eight hours per drive. Let's get an airplane. I remember you had your pilot's license. Go start training again. He eventually bought a small Cirrus SR-22 and I flew him all over the place in that thing. But yeah, I was his essentially personal pilot for a couple of years. Wow. So much great experience for you along that journey and deep thought, deep understanding within the CrossFit methodology. When you look at the methodology, you know, constantly varied high intensity functional movement. Um, I always like to challenge the phrasing of high intensity where I really do think it, it's probably varied intensity depending on the individual yeah. and kind of what they're going through. Um, how, how, how is your thought process around the methodology where the sport has gone and how affiliates are kind of being run from a gently zoomed out lens now? So I have no insight into any CrossFit affiliates. I, I mean, I owned one, but it was like 2006 to 2008. So well dated. Uh -huh. Um, I don't train at a CrossFit affiliate. There are a couple up in the Kalispell area that I live in, but I have no insight into how they're being run anymore. The sport itself, I stopped paying attention to the games when I stopped working at the games. You know, I was there, there, you know, the managing and liaisoning between CrossFit and Reebok. So I was intimately involved in everything from, you know, the very first endorsement deals for Graham Holmberg to the first, you know, the outfitting of all the athletes, all that stuff. Um, I think it's cool if it motivates people, um, but I, it, it's probably the best and worst marketing for CrossFit because people think that the games is what the programming should look like and that the body types of the people in the games, more on the female side of the house, you hear this one from women a lot. Well, I don't want to look like that. It's like those people are literally professional athletes who are doing this. I mean, I'm sure you've seen it at Invictus. It's like most people at Invictus don't look like that. They are somebody who is just trying to look better, be, be healthier, um, which leads me to, you know, the methodology. I love the methodology. It's one of the, it's one of the things I've always been open and honest about. I think it's really pure. You know, it, it definitely made me better at my job. I was much more functional once I started doing functional movements. Shocker. Yeah. You know? um, and, I, and I loved it. And I, since I've started doing jujitsu, I work out far less. Um, and my body has actually never felt better. Mm. You know, being away from a barbell a little bit, I need to, there's a balance because jujitsu will develop asymmetries. There's a lot more, um, you know, pulling than there is necessarily pushing. So you, and stability and, you know, elbows and shoulders and knees and stuff like that. So working out is still a priority, but when you first start, it's so exhausting. You just don't have the energy to, but as you develop again, more exposure, more experience, you can become more efficient. You're going to need to work out on top of that. But anytime I do uh, work out, it's still the exact same methodology. There's nothing I could ever say negative about it. You know, Greg was, I have plenty of criticism of Greg. I have no criticism of the uh, CrossFit methodology. That's awesome. I love the way you described making the transition to the business side of the house. How was that transition and that, that walk, you know, in the in-between? Because I feel like that's a subtle deconstruction of identity from a guy that, you know, was, you know, highly physically active, maybe prided himself on being the badass and then transitioning to being a thinker and a leader and a manager of people and understanding how to process systems and appropriate communication strategies to get shit done. It's, it's definitely tinkering in a different arena. And how did you handle that? Yeah, it was a shit show. Um, that would be the technical description of how that walk from doing seminars okay. to the so business So I'm doing side. it right right now is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
You know, I, I wasn't managing anybody. I, it was my, myself and a lawyer that were basically working together to make sure that the contract was being executed properly on the CrossFit side of the house. It was a super small team. And, you know, it was the first large relationship that CrossFit had entered into. So I think it's very safe to say that we were, we were building the airplane as we were taking off on the runway. Um, I don't think anybody really had any idea of what it would be, what it could become, what it was going to look like, the complications involved in it. So I just, it, and I really liked it because it was a new and fascinating set of challenges that I didn't have a lot of experience with. You know, if you work at 50 level ones, you understand how they are going to go. You can give the lectures. It's not, you're probably not going to encounter a new set of uh, challenges or a new set of questions because you work 51 instead of 50 on the, in the business world every day. I was like, huh, I don't know how to do that. I don't even know what that is. So first I need to figure out what the fuck you're talking about. And then I'll try to figure out what it is we're trying to accomplish here. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I, I am a fan of doing things that um, are challenging. I think there's a lot of reward in that. You know, I think seeking discomfort and that doesn't have to be physically. That could be mentally, that could be, you know, emotionally and, and more than anything, you know, maybe a better way to describe it would be just pushing your boundaries and constantly and consistently trying to move the needle, not by like catastrophic leaps and bounds, but a step at a time. You know, I, I think lifelong growth, it's one of the things I know I love about jujitsu. It can't be mastered. Like it's just, you're going to always, one, you have an opponent that has a say, they have their experience, they have what they want to do and they're trying to impose their will on you and you can try to force it or you can take it as the situation presents itself, use less energy, focus on your efficiency, focus on your technique, but you're still never going to master it. And to me, that's so fascinating. And I just can't get enough of it. That business side was exactly like that. It was just totally different, never ending questions. But since they were new, I was just fascinated by it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I I think that's a really cool description. Something that's fascinating. I was, I was coaching a client the other day at Invictus and he asked me, my background was professional basketball and then CrossFit. And he was like, well, do you, do, which one do you miss more? And I was like, well, I, I think I pushed my boundaries and exercised everything I could in each. But the one thing I really missed about basketball was like the, the psychological jujitsu of like, if somebody had their hands on me, I could get them leaning a certain way or really problem solving with weight distribution or, you know, pausing or faking or using, you know, different tools other than speed and strength to to manipulate the situation to my advantage and that's something that all of a sudden there was like this aha moment in the terminology of psychological jujitsu where i was like man maybe jujitsu is the next thing i've heard you talk about it i connected with jason kalipa about it and he just raved and his eyebrows perked and um it seems to be a really cool correlation to what's next how to remain physically active without continually getting beat up by a barbell and having uh, insurmountable metrics that are a little bit silly at times. But uh, what are your thoughts on kind of that dichotomy as people are gently moving on to a new chapter, a new phase, and how jujitsu fits the mold for that? I mean, I'm biased, obviously, because I've, I've been at it now for just over four years. I really enjoy it. Um, my wife is a jujitsu instructor. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. literally in Costa Rica right now at a jujitsu camp. So I, it's something that I pursue. Is it accessible to everybody? I would say yes, assuming you can find the right place to train and the right coach. Very similar to the CrossFit methodology. You know, there are people 
who uh, affiliate owners who are like, you know what, I just want to produce games competitors. And I wouldn't recommend that somebody in their 50s or 60s hop into that class, just like there are jujitsu gyms that, you know, the mat is full of 18 to 22 year old absolute killers. And it's probably not a good idea for your grandfather to go and drop in on that class and try jujitsu because mm-hmm. they're going to go so sweet, get over here because you're the minnow in a, in a pool of piranhas. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I look at the school that I train at, my coach Travis, he awarded a guy a black belt in his 60s. And the guy is a savage. Is he going to be, get beat up by – or is he not going to get beat up because that's not actually what we're trying to do. Is he going to lose to a black belt who's in his 20s? Yeah, all the time. But that's not the metric, right? He's on a journey against his previous self. Um, but it is accessible to, I think, everybody. And again, like I said, I'm going to caveat that with assuming you can find the right location and the right coach. But it'll challenge you. I mean, it is taxing. It is a spectacular workout, especially when you first start because you're just ridiculously inefficient. Again, just like CrossFit, you see people muscling their way through the movements. And the more that you do it and the more efficient you become, you know, the stimulus is a little bit less effective. So you can either go harder or figure out other ways to challenge yourself. Um, there's a flexibility component to it, you know, a cardio component to it. Um, it's not going to build a lot of strength, but depending on where you're starting, it certainly could add strength. Um, and my goal is to try to be able to do it as, as long as I can, because it has increased my mobility. You know, I sleep better when I work, when I work out emotionally, I do better when I'm physically active. It was, it was a great transition. And my only regret about jujitsu is that I didn't start it earlier. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. How did you find your way into leadership consulting? And, you know, really <laughs> using using the, the skills from all these different facets. I mean, Andy, it feels like you've lived like a few different lives. When, when, when we talk about like the lead up to the military, the military experience, which probably could be partitioned into a part one, part two, uh, the CrossFit experience. And now, you know, obviously running a, an amazing podcast, Cleared Hot, and the leadership consulting. I I wish I had a structured approach to that. It was completely by accident. A, a buddy of mine who worked at a an IT business hit me up one day. He goes, hey, you're a SEAL, right? I was like, yes, you know the answer to that. He goes, well, they, you guys are at SEAL teams, right? I was like, yeah. He goes, cool. We need somebody to come talk to our business about teamwork. And since you are at a place called SEAL, SEAL team, you should probably come and do that. I'm like, <laughs> okay. And so I did, and I enjoyed it. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to talk about. And then, so I wrote some stuff down, and, I, and uh, I had already been doing a good amount of the lecturing on the CrossFit um, level one circuit. So my fear of public speaking it was smashed way before that. It's just like I don't, I don't even care. You know, it's, it's, it, I get the fear of not wanting to get up and publicly speak, but once you do it for a bit, you realize that, hey, we're all just human, and you're going to use the wrong word sometime. And, you're going to be okay. So I didn't mind the idea of going and talking at the organization. And I don't even think I charged him. Hmm. Um, and there was somebody in the audience who came up and they, and they said, Hey, that was awesome. Can you come do that at my business? And I was like, uh, sure. So when did it at their business and it slowly just built over time. And then one day somebody said, hey, you should do a website for this so people can find you and know that you're a speaker. I was like, son of a bitch, that's a good idea. Maybe I should do that. How the fuck do you build a website? Let me find somebody that can do that or do a little bit of Google research. And so then I did that and I created a website. And it, it honestly, it just slowly built over time. You know, And again, after doing it for 
almost 10 years at this point. I've spoken to every business sector that there probably could possibly be, for everything from huge, you know, multi-thousand uh, participant audiences to like 10 people in a C-suite in financial organizations that have trillions of dollars. It's, you know, and the message is largely the same. I mean, I can tailor it depending on what it is they're necessarily looking for. But again, my first step into it was accidental. It was not because I had some grand plan. I had an opportunity that came up for me that led to another opportunity that led to another one. And I just kind of kept saying yes. That's super cool. How did you ultimately put together the structure? Like you have so many different tangents that you could potentially go on for that very first talk when your buddy was just like, Hey, you're a te- you're a seal team guy. Yeah. Like, let's, let's go figure you got this teams, out. We got teams. We should all have a team and talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I forget. I, I've, I've always had notebooks that I keep notes in and I did the same thing for my level one lectures. I had a notebook of, and I, I would just, I put in, I put in a topic that I want to cover and not necessarily the path of how I want to navigate around that topic. And I kind of, let the audience and the conversation determine the way we go. And oftentimes it's based off of questions. So I had a few key points that I wanted to cover. And then I just kind of played it off the hip. Not what I would recommend for most people when they first started. And I've since changed that, obviously. And over time, I structured it. and I met other speakers and I was like, hey, um, how much money do you charge? Like, how does this work? You yeah. know, and slowly put it all together. And again, a decade later, like, here we are. That's awesome, man. Uh, recently, you were, on, you were on Rogan. And you and your mm-hmm. buddy Mike, the CEO of Overwatch, kind of had an amazing conversation. There was peaks, valleys. You guys got into the COVID conversation. Um, yep. Rogan always does such an awesome job of like what you said, where it's just it's such a human conversation versus like, hello, da, 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 like making it very yeah. um, suit and tie-ish. And uh, you guys, you guys are, are working on something cool. Would you mind sharing that a little bit with our audience? Yeah, so what, what is the day today? The seventh. In 22 days, I head down to uh, Chile to Punta Arenas because we're going to get ready to attempt to do a skydive, one skydive in each of the seven continents, and do it in a week. Mm. Um, so we got to start. We're going to start in Antarctica because that is the long pole in the tent when it comes to weather, and they actually have some uh, some pretty legacy COVID protocols. So we're going to be sitting there for about five or six days before they let us do anything. But the, uh, the timer will start as soon as we get out of the aircraft on the first jump, and we're hoping to be able to jump and then leave the same day. And then I think we're doing South America first, and I think we're hitting Miami, and then we are basically going east and ending in Australia. Uh, and the organization that we're trying to raise money for is uh, called Folds of Honor, and they do educational scholarships for uh, military children, the children of military service members who are either injured or killed, and also first responders. So it's a pretty broad, broad net. Um, and yeah, we're trying to raise as much money as we possibly can. So the expedition, we're going to do a documentary around that. And I think it'll come out probably like a year or so after we do the actual jumps themselves, but just trying to do something that will get eyeballs. So then you can push those eyeballs onto a cause. that's actually worthwhile because honestly, like the seven jumps in seven days is completely irrelevant, but if people pay attention to it and then they do a little bit of research or we can get them to look at folds of honor, then, you know, then we'll have been successful. That's cool. You're so humble with with the skydiving stuff, which I'm very intrigued by. But more importantly, Dude, it's, just with, gra- it's just gravity. Yeah, totally. It works every time so far. Absolutely. <laughs> Something that's so interesting to me is, you know, looking back at, you know, some of the challenges within COVID and all the different organizations that came from, 
you know, all the different issues that took place the last few years, I, I feel like so many of us are, are ignorant or really uneducated around, we think we're donating to a really good cause, but we really don't know where a lot mm. of the money is going. I think it's cool that you guys are kind of putting a stake in the ground and really just being transparent with Folds of Honor and where the money's going and why it's going there and how it relates to both of your stories. Yeah, you got to be really careful donating money. Um, there are countless nonprofits out there, and there are obviously varying degrees of how well they are executed. Again, we're talking about human beings at the end of the day. You got people out there with the best of intentions, and then you got complete sociopaths. And sometimes they run 501c3s as well. So I think it's just important to do, you know, definitely research where you want to spend your money and research what the organization does with it. And oftentimes, uh, you know, there are actually organizations that rate charities and they can give you some insight, you know, and find out out of every dollar that is donated, what percentage of that actually goes to the causes that they are, you know, supposedly fundraising for. Because you'll be shocked what you find sometimes. Sometimes you'll find it's 90 cents go to operating cost of the organization and 10% goes to the initiatives that you're talking to you about. And I, I mean, again, people can donate their money where they want to. I don't want to be a part of that organization. I want the vast majority of the money going towards exactly what it is that they are talking about and what they are created to do. Yeah, that's a really distinct differentiation. And look at you sharing business knowledge from the guy that didn't start on the business side of the house. I didn't, but I've done some work. You know, I worked with the Navy SEAL Foundation, and I think they're at like a 94 cents out of every dollar, you know, goes towards the uh, the allocation and the programs. Like it's in a fantastic rating, and they – you know, they have a very transparent, um, you know, bookkeeping system, their reporting system, all of that stuff. It's it's not hard to figure out where it goes. It's just a little bit time consuming. But I recommend if people – one, separating people's money from their wallets is a difficult thing. And it should be because they work really hard for that. So if people are going to be willing to make that donation, just spend the time just to make sure that the money that you worked very hard for is actually going to do something for somebody and, you know – not upgrade the uh, office suite of the of the entity that you just donated to. Yeah, absolutely. Your your podcast, man, is is really really awesome. I enjoy what you have to say. Thank I you. enjoy the guests that you have on. How do you kind of navigate that? That's a completely different business space of operation. Where in the beginning, it's like yeah. I have something to say. I want to put it somewhere. And then it leads to guests and scheduling and sponsor reads and. Maybe I need a website for that too. Maybe I need production. Maybe I need some sort of graphic design. How have you evolved yep. that side or that uh, department of your, your business logistics? Slowly over time. You know, my first podcast kit was a classic Zoom 6 HD with two microphones, some pop filters in front of them, and uh, like two, two headsets. And there was no – it was audio only. There was no video. There was no advertising. I didn't. I was like, advertising. I don't even know how that shit works. Why would it, you know? Like, why would you advertise on a podcast? I had no idea. Um, and then I wanted to be able to talk to more people. I was like, well, maybe I should get a different system. So I, you know, slowly over time, like every iterations, all the way up to like you know, roadcasters and all that stuff. And eventually, people started harping on me, like, well, we want to watch the podcast. Fuck, I don't know how to do that. So I bought a camera, which led to multiple cameras, which led to figuring out the what software can you use to sync audio and video? Like, you know, this, what we're on right now, the, the Riverside FM wasn't even an option when I started, you know, I mm -hmm. actually 
went I went away from doing remote um, conversations really rapidly because I didn't like the products that were available at the time. You know, I mm-hmm. found it really difficult to connect with somebody that you don't know well remotely. Some people can do it better than others. For me, it's not my strength, so I went away from doing that. Um, and then it slowly continued to grow. And when I, you know, when we got to Montana and COVID hit, you know, I was able to find a studio space ridiculously inexpensive, a couple hundred bucks a month and be able to actually professionalize it even more. You know, I upgraded the cameras. I got a different table. I got better microphone. I basically went to Rogan's studio and took pictures of everything. I'm like, Oh, don't worry about me. I'm just going to completely and utterly 100% copy everything that you have. It's not a big deal. And so I was like, I don't fucking care. Go ahead. You know, and I, I had the benefit of being able to like, communicate with Jamie, his, you know, producer, and he helped me out with a lot of stuff. I'm very fortunate in that regard. Yeah. But it, I mean, it, it literally went from that little HD that I could carry around in a, you know, like a little attache case to the full setup that I have now with, you know, some 6k cameras, some 4k cameras. Um, I, I now have my editor in the, he's not editing, he's doing the live camera switching. And then the, the video portion is ready to upload as soon as the podcast is done. He helps me with my fulfillment. You know, at some point people are like, you should make a t-shirt. I was like, son of a bitch. I don't know how to do that. I haven't thought about making t-shirts. So it all just built over time. And again, and now we're talking five years into the podcast. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the final iteration would be. Like I'm getting ready to add an in-studio TV so we can look at stuff. And um, now that Michael is in the room with me, he can, we can, it, it's very similar to Joe's setup, shocker. Um, his setup is awesome, but it gives you the ability to reference and look up stuff in real time. Right now, Michael can do that at his desk because he has a computer, but I want to have a monitor on the table so the guests and I can look at it as well. And then beyond that, I don't know what I'll do from there, but I just try to listen to people when they have suggestions. And if it seems like a valid suggestion, I just take action on it. Yeah, totally. What I love about podcasting other than, as I mentioned briefly, talking to people way smarter than me is the the research component, the learning component, the really diving into somebody else's stories and gaining the perspective and the lenses. Like we're, we're now two years into this project and I feel like I've gotten an MBA in life, just kind of really learning from, from, from military to, you know, we just had, um, Dr. Andy Galpin on earlier this week. So Mm -hmm. we're talking muscle physiology and energy systems and appropriate dosages of, of certain supplements and ingredients. And there, there's just so many, unique facets of life that I'm like, man, it's incredibly hard to get bored. I want to find a way to do them all. And I feel like you're, you're one of those people, like you're always finding ways to learn, upgrade your operating system. And also what I really appreciate and honor is, is your willingness to get out in nature and explore the outdoors, especially there, there in Montana. I wanted to kind of end our conversation today, kind of dissecting that a little bit how did you ultimately mm-hmm. get into to hunting and how does that process kind of satisfy the emotional and spiritual side of your world I'm trying to think about it was through archery and i got into archery through rogan and we were at uh there was we were at the shot show years ago and joe was there with cam haynes and they invited me to a dinner at, uh, at a steakhouse. And that evening, he introduced me to John Dudley, who is a world-class archery coach. And Dudley was living, or does live, he lives in Iowa. And I actually drove to his house and spent some time with him 
after the last CrossFit Games that I ever went to from Madison. I actually went from Madison to his house, and he totally dialed me in on a bow and taught me how to shoot it. And he brought up the idea of hunting shortly after I was there because he had a slot available. And I just kind of jumped on it on a whim. And I didn't really know what it was going to be like. You know, I'd never been archery hunting before. And we went up to Alberta, Canada. And we ended up doing that three years in a row. And it was just awesome. And again, it was just drafting on off somebody who is, has this depth of knowledge and experience. It's fucking hard to describe, actually. He's, his knowledge of animals and their behavior because of the interactions that he has had is just it's unbelievable. And, um, I loved it. You know, it was cool to be back. You know, there, a lot of my old job was in the outdoors, but a lot of the people that we were hunting also had weapons and they would shoot back and it's way better to hunt an elk that doesn't have a AK 47. Yeah. Um, you know, it might, it might gore you if you were to get that close to it, which I don't rec- recommend that people do, even though there are elk in Yosemite that will walk up to your car. Don't get out of your car. People they are still wild animals. That's my public safety announcement for today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just loved it. Um, and I happened to be living in a state that has access to some of the best hunting in the world. You know, it's, it's the Western Rockies. Um, I love being outdoors. I love the challenge of it. I love that when it comes to bow hunting, you're more than likely not going to be successful and you can just go walk miles and see nothing. And a lot of people will get frustrated at that. And all you really need to do is let your head up and look around and realize you're in an amazing place. And it's not even necessarily about the animal. You know, again, it's about the journey. It's about the people that you're with. I love hunting, but I love hunting with the people that I hunt with more than the hunt itself. Wow, that's a very eloquent description. Are you aware of of just the the vast impact that, that, that you're having in the world? I mean, you're rubbing elbows with, with Cam Haynes, with Joe Rogan. Like, the, you guys are part of a, a unique crew that is interfacing with one another, with the external world, but simultaneously sharing insight on, on really important topics and have, have the ability and opportunity to really shift behavior. And I, I really admire that. And it's just interesting to you know, go, go behind the scenes a little bit and see how you think, why you think, and you know, what the process is. I, I liked your analogy of drafting off somebody, you know, cause I think Kobe mm-hmm. described that a little bit in his career where he was trying to learn certain things. You just call people, Hey, how'd you do this? Yeah. Would you, would you like to meet? Would you like to learn this? And it's just like, it, it not only gets you the skills that you're looking for, but also builds a relationship where you're actually learning from each other. Cause you and I both know to teach is to learn twice. And so for sure, what's this experience been like really, you know, connecting with, you know, people like I mentioned and, you know, watching how you continually upgrade and positively impact the world. You know, podcasting is an interesting ecosystem because you hit upload and then you don't even really know where the message is going. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, you can get total downloads and all that stuff and you can geographically break it out. Um, But I get emails every day from people who found something positive from the podcast. And I can't think of anything more rewarding and enriching for me as a person than that. You know, I got really lucky to be introduced to Joe through a mutual friend and he and I happened to hit it off and he is a good friend of mine. And I don't, you know, when I'm with those guys like Joe and Cam, I don't, I don't even think about it in the terms of like the impact that they're having. They're just Joe and Cam to me, Yeah. you know? So it's, it's, I don't know. I don't spend any time thinking about what impact I may or may not be having because I don't want to 
I don't want that to influence my thought process. I want to do it for the right reasons. I want to do it for reasons that are interesting to me and not try to like work my way backward into a result, if that makes sense. Yeah. I love that. Something that I've been thinking about a lot recently is in the world right now, people are loving things and using people. But in reality, I humbly believe that we should love people and use things like these things are tools. But it's a really unique thing that I think social media is causing a little bit. And I just really appreciate that you guys are practicing what I, I believe is called yellow journalism, which is you know, really positively trying to put out news and thoughts and pieces of information that you hold to be true up until that moment based on experience research. And then obviously painting the appropriate picture of like, hey, these are my lenses. This is not necessarily everybody else's lenses. I just try to tell the truth and I always try to preface, you know, my beliefs and my feelings is that they're exactly that and that's all that they're valid for. And I can give people, I can lay the breadcrumbs out as to how I arrived at those positions and beliefs, but you're free, you know, feel free to do with them what you want. Maybe it makes a, a difference to you and maybe you disagree and I'm totally fine with, you know, both of those iterations. Super cool. I'll wrap things up with saying that something that I hold to be true personally is that two people can disagree and still hold respect within the messy middle. And I think that's a a really unique thing that people can take away. Andy Stumpf, ladies and gentlemen. Andy, thanks so much for, for doing this and spending some time with me and giving me a gentle peek behind the curtain. Uh, where can people follow you and how can people support the Folds of Honor cause that you're getting ready to uh, embark on here in a couple of weeks? Yeah, so social media, which I, I have found to be neither social nor media, but it is part of the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. And just my name, Andy Stumpf, within the number uh, 212 after it on Instagram. It's probably the platform I'm the most active on. Um, and in the there's a link in my bio that goes directly to uh, the fundraising for the triple seven, which is what we're calling it. Seven jumps, seven continents, seven days. But you know, you don't have to go to folds of honor through me. Feel free to just go directly to their website and donate. That's one of the things that we wanted to be really clear about when it came to the expedition is anytime we throw up a link that it has to go directly back to folds of honor. I don't want to have these, you know, you see it, well, donate to my site. And then what I'll do is I'll donate the money. It's like, no, 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 no. Like I don't want to touch this money. I want it just completely going where it should be going, which is to the educational scholarships for those that are left behind. Love it, Andy. Such high character, high praise, supreme moral code. Thank you so much, man. For those of you listening or observing on YouTube, if you enjoyed my conversation with Andy Stump today, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. And as always, stay on the hunt for who you've not yet become. Till next time. Thanks so much, Andy. Are you over 35 and in need of a solid training program? Are you looking to improve your athleticism and keep up with the younger athletes in your CrossFit gym? Then look no further than our Invictus Masters program. This program places year-round emphasis on mobility and stability exercises with movements that we have seen directly benefit our Masters athletes. Our program is led by Nicole DeHart and offers a training program designed specifically for Masters athletes who are looking to compete at a higher level in the sport of CrossFit. Some of our top Masters athletes in the world train with us, including CrossFit Games champion Kevin Kester, Matt Beals, and Pat Sprague. You can learn more about their stories 
and the Invictus Masters program by checking out their episodes right here on the Invictus Mindset Podcast. If you'd like more information about the current training cycle or to join the Invictus Masters program, please email Nicole at InvictusAthlete.com. That's N-I-C-H-O-L-E at InvictusAthlete.com.